Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Mitchell Morris, Chair of Musicology as well as of LGBTQ Studies at UCLA, discusses Il Trovatore, the career of Verdi, and the reception of Italian opera. This discussion was recorded as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators, in September of 2020. I'm really glad to have a chance to talk a little bit about Il Trovatore today, particularly because it represents some really interesting things in the career of Giuseppe Verdi and in sort of the reception of Italian opera in the 19th century in general. Um, Some of you have, whether or not you know it, probably encountered bits of Il Trovatore from childhood. It's one of the operas that figures most prominently in the Marx Brothers old film, A Night at the Opera, in fact. And one of the main reasons I think it appeared in A Night in the Opera is that it represents for some people, for many people actually, a lot of what is is kind of irresistibly vulgar and exciting about Italian opera of the 19th century. There are reasons for that. Um, Il Trovatore is an opera which has been a great popular success since it appeared. It has also been not quite so fondly greeted by critics of various sorts. My old teacher, Joe Kerman, just couldn't abide it. He thought that it was trashy, trashy, trashy. And it's interesting to me that the things that he did not like about it seem upon research to have been things that Verdi was doing very deliberately. That Verdi was after something very particular in this in this opera, and I want to explore a little bit about what that is by talking a little bit about Italian opera convention and what Il Trovatore is doing with that particular topic. To back up, let's actually place Il Trovatore in Verdi's career. Um, famously, after the premiere of Nabucco in 1842, um, Verdi had approximately, well, 16 years, he likes to describe it, of hard, hard work in Italian opera companies and houses without very much power to dictate what he wanted to do artistically. These are the years that famously Verdi referred to as his time in the galleys, when he was basically rowing ships in, in from his point of view. But it's important to realize why that would have been a significant thing. Uh, I like to tell my undergraduates that if you want to really understand the condition of music even far into the 19th century, you have to imagine that you're living in a place that has only radio stations that never play oldies. So you're not necessarily listening to, oh, I remember back when I was 16 and I was listening to Toto singing Africa or something like that. You're not thinking in those terms. You're interested in what's new. Now, when you're constantly dealing with new music, as a regular audience member, you need help. And this is one of the things that conventions do for us. Now, the reason we care about those conventions is because they save us a certain amount of labor. We have to absorb a great deal of information whenever we're watching a new show or watching a play, listening to a new piece. And it's often more effective and easy when there are things we can already hold on to 
where we have these moments where we say, I know how this goes. I know where we are in this. And that's a very, very powerful and important function for convention. And one that often you find that you wait for. If you have a particular favorite pop genre, for instance, it's going to have particular habits, particular turns of phrase, as it were, particular conventions that it likes to use, um, various forms of hip hop, various forms of rock and roll, um, you know, all those goth children doing their own sort of thing. All these genres have particular conventions and we depend on them more than depend on them. We like them. We expect to have them, and if we don't get what we expect, we'd better have something really interesting enough to substitute for it. So composers are often playing with conventions, trying to subvert them in some ways, twist them in other ways, do without them entirely, swap in new ones, um, experimenting with those kinds of things all the time. And this is really where we come back into contact with Verdi. Because Italian opera in the 19th century tended to be very convention laden. It needed to be because it's for a large audience. It's going to be new music all the time. Houses have certain ways they like to do things. And oh, there's this other little tricky problem is there are censorship boards and your opera is going to have to pass the censor before it can be mounted in any case. Um, Italian opera is less my stomping grounds than Russian opera, and there's a wonderful and famous moment where Rimsky-Korsakov gets very indignant with his early opera, Pskovitianka, the maid of Pskov, because it was going to have Ivan the Terrible in it. And the imperial censor said, absolutely not, you can't actually include a king anywhere. And in the formulation that I've never forgotten, uh, Rimsky describes them as saying, well, and what if the Tsar should sing a ditty? It would be unseemly. And things like that are really frequent amongst the censors. You may know, for instance, that in the struggle to get Rigoletto up, they had to fight the censors and had to change to make the main bad guy a duke, not a prince, because otherwise it would just get too problematic. You can't have a king, you can't have a prince, you need it to be a duke. Um, something similar happens in Umbalu in Maschera. You actually have to change its location, you have to change the status of the people in order to get past the censors. So you've got a lot of things like this going on that if you're an enterprising opera composer, you have to take account of. And especially when you're a young man making his way in the world, like Verdi was, you kind of have to do what you're told until you get enough power that you can start to shape things on your own. And close to the end of this 16 years that Ver Verdi was spending in the galleys, he was finally acquiring this power. And we see it particularly in pieces that often I've seen people describe as, well, this is really middle period Verdi. The uh, larger operas that start to show up in the very last stages of this. Now, as it happens, Il Trovatore appears when two other really important operas are in Genesis. Um, just a little bit before is Rigoletto. And being written in some ways simultaneously with Il Trovatore is La Traviata, in fact. And juxtaposing these operas is a very useful way of getting another angle on the question of convention. 
If you look at Rigoletto, for instance, you will discover that a lot of the formal structures that Verdi had liked to use have suddenly become open-ended. They don't necessarily finish with a bang and a hooray and a now we're done, period. They often will bleed into the next section because psychologically characters are growing and evolving. Think about the way that people learn information in the story of Rigoletto and the new information is what causes them to act. In Gilda's case, most tragically at the very end when she finds out um, that this assassination is gonna take place and she decides to substitute herself. La Traviata, very much the same kind of thing where constantly Violetta's interior states are being examined through monologues and through this sort of process of musical development. Il Trovatore is quite different. In fact, it's quite, it's quite a strange thing because when you look at the correspondence between Verdi and his librettists, this is the period when you especially see Verdi starting to pick on his librettists a bit. He wants certain things and he wants to make sure his librettists are gonna do it and he will browbeat them if he needs to because this is a thing he wants. Oddly enough, Although he begins his correspondence about Il Trovatore by saying, we don't really want all these conventions. I'd like to get rid of all this sort of stuff. Let's not have all these things. And can we please not have an opening chorus? Despite all of these desires, the texture of Il Trovatore ends up being extremely conventional in almost violently conventional ways, actually. And we're going to explore what is seems to be going on there. But what you may be wondering, do I mean by conventions? Do I mean the sort of conventions that we associate with Beethoven's cadences or Mozart's turns of phrase? Not particularly. Italian opera in this period is particularly interested in tempo. And a lot of things are organized according to big sections in particular speeds. Thus, um, probably many of you have heard the sort of the pairing, the paired terms, cavatina, cabaletta. What exactly does that mean? Well, in part, it has to do with rhythmic character. The first part of, of this kind of two-part aria is called the cavatina. It's often called the cantabile. Um, it's the lyrical sung part that's often a bit more reflective in the sort of very standard stereotype. The cabaletta is something fiery, fast, more athletic. It usually is something that resembles what used to be called an exit aria. After cabaletta, probably somebody's going to stride off the stage to riotous applause. And in between these two, there's often one section that causes a big change in mood. That's called the tempo di mezzo. And this kind of structure is flexible, but you need to have each section. Now, it was very clear that by this point, Verdi was laboring under this. It's not necessarily always something that you want to use. Um, if everything ends up being in this kind of sort of rhythmic tempo structure, uh, you know, you're risking it being really kind of dull. And moreover, Verdi, who is particularly interested in a, a very specific kind of drama, is finding this less and less useful. Now, what I mean by that is Verdi is, at this point in his career, usually quite interested in psychology. He believes that people have depths, 
that there are deep interior states as well as external states. He believes that you can get access to the interior states of people, to their feelings and their sort of deepest sentiments. You can represent these things in combinations of word, music, and gesture. And that to see these things change over the course of a story is the essence of drama. It's actually closer to some Wagnerian ideas about drama than it might have been for someone like Rossini, for instance, where drama isn't necessarily the same kind of thing for him. Rossini isn't necessarily interested in this sort of sense of people's interiors changing over time. You know, who else is not very interested in that quite often is Puccini. Puccini likes theatrical effect. He wants intense emotion. He wants things that are shocking. And if they're not terribly coherent always, that's all right. That's all right. Because that's not the point of this kind of opera. Is opera a study of a character or is opera a spectacle? It doesn't have to be an either or question, but it often works out that one is more salient than another. And Verdi is particularly interested in psychology, which makes Il Trovatore even more of an anomaly. It's really obvious in Rigoletto, and perhaps for me at least, even more in La Traviata, that internal states matter hugely. What is La Traviata about if it's not about Violetta's feelings and how she sort of learns to reach for happiness only to have it ripped away from her, only to try to rise above it. Um, all these kinds of things are going on within her. Yes, there is action. But what we care about is the expressions of feelings that she's especially going to be um, giving us when she's by herself. By contrast, Il Trovatore, it, you know, you need Errol Flynn for this kind of thing. It's, it's really, it's got this sort of rough, hurly-burly kind of action to it where they don't have time to think about character. If you think about something like the Seahawk or Robin Hood with now the late Olivia de Havilland, those are not characters that develop and change and grow. They are archetypes in this sort of sense. They are sort of stock characters in a way. And at least one person, the distinguished Canadian novelist Robertson Davies, defended Verdi's kind of theater precisely on these grounds. He would say, well, you know, it's an archetypal theater. You have to think in almost Jungian terms about these. These are not people necessarily. They are types. They are ways of being. And that's less true, I think, in something like Rigoletto or Traviata, but it's very, very much true in Trovatore. This is why we have such an egregious character as Atsuchena. Now, if you think about it, this is now for us politically a little uncomfortable. What? Oh, gee, a gypsy woman stealing a baby and murdering things. Stereotype much? Well, of course, it is deliberately this evocation of this very, very old sort of figure that Verdi wants to use here. As it happens, she's more complicated than just a gypsy thief. Um, but that image is part of what he's got to work with there. So uh, Trovatore in this trio is the odd opera out. 
it doesn't have a whole lot in the way of complex psychology. A lot of times things happen in this opera and you think, what, why did that just occur? And wait a minute, it didn't make any difference. Oh, I'm having an absolute fit because I mistook this thing that you thought was going on. And oh, let me explain. Oh, it's okay then. What, why did we even have that event? Why did you mistake someone in the moonlight for someone else if it's going to all go away in less than five minutes? You do it if you want that experience of raw primal jealousy. If you think of this as a collection of intense emotional states to be examined, experienced, savored, and sort of incorporated, then it doesn't necessarily matter whether characters have that kind of psychological continuity. What we care about is these moments of feeling. And weirdly enough, the conventions of Italian opera are excellent at expressing those sorts of things. They are very, very carefully carved out structures that can have that kind of identity that allows us to say, oh, okay, I recognize this, this is what this feeling could feel like. Now, this is in uh, if Trovatore's case, not necessarily a matter of what we might think of, for instance, as harmonic complexity. This is where normally if we were person in person, I would walk over to the piano and I would start talking about harmony for a little bit. I'm afraid I can't do it, but if you can summon to the mind's ear um, a random passage from, oh, I don't know, Tristan and Isolde, that would be good enough. You will know that what you get are these very complex and ambivalent harmonies where you often don't know where you are in musical space. In Trovatore, you know pretty much where you are all the time, in fact. But what's going on that sort of captures you is more rhythmic than it is harmonic. Um, remember, Verdi still likes dance patterns. You will still have accompaniments that Germans like to use to dismiss as the big guitar, where you're gonna get a big sweeping melody and some pattern in the orchestra that'll sound like or various forms like that. They are there because they are a way of articulating space rhythmically in a particular quality of motion. You don't waltz the way that you do a galliard. You don't actually, dances are not all the same. A polka does not move the way that a shotish does. And the differences in dance forms translate into physical experiences in our bodies, which can then help us shape how we understand a particular emotion, not just cognitively. It's not just a question of, well, what is my feeling? It's that we know what it feels like to inhabit that kind of a rhythmic space. And so rhythm is really important in this. Now, Trovatore also doesn't necessarily, as I say, have a whole lot of plot coherence. That's not the crucial thing as well. And Part of the lack of plot coherence and the lack of complex psychology is that the formal structures that I've been to sort of describing, things like duets or arias as well, um, trios, marches, choruses, all these kinds of set pieces, they tend to finish in Trovatore. If in a different opera, like 
La Traviata or in Rigoletto, they won't necessarily finish. They could be interrupted. They could trail off and move into something else. They could start in this kind of inchoate way and then suddenly, bam, you're in a form. In Trovatore, they tend to be fairly contained in this way. And what that does is it creates a certain kind of stasis. Atsuchena is who she is, and she is not going to change. That is not the point of this opera. Manrico is who he is, and so on. Because you're looking at these characters almost in an, in an atemporal way. Also, the music is, for many people, simple. Now, I hate this word because there's lots of different kinds of simple, and sometimes things that sound really very, very modest can be incredibly difficult to interpret. That's a different kind of simplicity. But it is true that the melodies are fairly accessible. It is true that there's not a whole lot of complicated counterpoint or harmony going on. And it is also true that the action on stage tends strongly towards the violent, the frenetic, and not a little bit vulgar. This is probably part of why it's such a humongous popular success. Who doesn't want something like this? It's great. It's a really kind of popular theater as this goes. This is closer to the kinds of popular entertainment that you see in many, many countries in the late 19th century than Verdi's other operas. Um, when you have this kind of melodrama where there are sudden last minute rescues and thrilling escapades and violent conflicts, that's much more like, a, you know, like really an old, sort of an old theatrical play by Robert Louis Stevenson or something like that. And that Quality is also really part of it's the goal of its popular appeal. Now, what I'd like to do in this case is now turn to listening to some music and talking about how this actually appears in a couple of ways. One thing that makes this hard for English speakers is that an Italian speaker would hear the language and be able to have the cultural literacy to hear the formal structures better than we can. It's very, very hard for us, unless we are fluent in Italian, which I am certainly not. Um, it's much harder for us to know necessarily how the poetry is breaking down, what its forms are going to be, and how it's actually going to be interacting with the music, particularly with the melodies. That's a real challenge for us. What I want you to notice particularly, I think, instead of trying to decipher that, which takes many, many listenings, is one place you can start when you're really starting to get to know um, one of these movements is to think in terms of two of these domains. One is timbre and the other is texture. This is an old thing from musicology in the 1970s, Schmerg. This was a kind of checklist that was devised to give people something to hang on to when they were listening to various pieces. Schmerg stands for the following words. S for sound, H for harmony, R for rhythm, M for melody, and G for growth. And I just got those in the wrong order because I was reading my transposed version. I, the person who invented this means what I would separate into several different areas. 
One is timbre proper. We often talk about that as the color of the sound. If you've ever heard something like Benjamin Britten's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra or Peter and the Wolf, um, if you've ever been to a jazz combo where everybody's soloing, you'll notice instruments have very, very different sound worlds. They have different, well, the word that we always tend to use is color, although it's a very, very poor descriptor of what it is. It's the thing that lets you know the difference between an organ and a piano. It's the thing that helps you recognize the voices of other people, in fact. Those are things that go into making up timbre. So timbre is one of the elements in the S. The other two are texture. Think of it as how many things are happening at one time and register how high or low in all of musical space is stuff going on. H, harmony, will not detain us for today. M, for melody. There is an interesting thing that I'll say about melody, but I'm gonna come back to it. R, which I think is there mostly because it's closer to a vowel than anything else would be, um, covers rhythm, but it also covers meter. That is to say, it covers the sort of smaller, figures that we hear immediately, as if it were on the surface of the piece, plus the sort of background things that let you march or let you sort of keep a kind of set of patterns. And G is, his, is the um, author's term growth for what often music appreciation people would call form. Um, his rationale was, well, what form is a fugue? A fugue isn't really a form. A fugue is a way of making music out of something. So these terms are helpful, not because you just sort of, this is what makes music. This is a convenient checklist. It's a convenient way for you to say, all right, I'm listening to this piece. I'm just gonna focus on this thing. I'm gonna focus just on the rhythm in this particular performance. Next I'll go through and I'll focus on the sound and so on. I suggest that you pay particular attention to texture, how busy are things, how much stuff is happening at a time, and paying attention to the rhythmic structure of it. I wanna play significant chunks of two things, one from the beginning of act two, and the second from nearly the end of the opera. The first thing I wanna play is Verdi at his most populist. And this is the famous piece that we know as the Anvil Chorus. It's a set piece. It's an exotic set piece. It's gypsies in the mountains making, you know, building, forging steel. They are interrupted by Atsuchena, who suddenly has a vivid vision slash memory of her mother's execution and her burning for, for child murder. Um, so that's really the whole structure that you get the all of the exotic stuff with the, the sort of gypsy caravan. Think Carmen. You know, this is a real sort of stock 19th century kind of thing to do. Um, think Esmeralda in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. There are plenty of these characters. Are they historically that closely related to the Roma people? No, they are not. They are actually these sort of figures of projection that certain, especially French authors, but you know, other people in Europe want to use to create a kind of semi-exotic other. Because you remember, it's really, really important. What separates the Roma from Europeans is they have a certain otherness, but it's not 
a simple kind of otherness. They are not truly white, but they are also white-ish. They are white enough to sort of count if you need them to, but they're in an odd border position. Are they, quote, oriental? That's unclear. They don't have any sort of permanent residence. They have all sorts of unsavory, horrible stereotypes attached to them. They become these poetic outcast figures that are going to be very, very useful for anybody who's interested in romantic aesthetics. When you have romantic aesthetics, you like outcasts, you like foreign sort of mysterious people who are sort of going along in Byronic isolated splendor. And these women typically fulfill part of that role as well as I'm afraid being really sort of available for certain kinds of sexual fantasy for the audience. That's clearly part of what's going on with Carmen. So it's a big exotic piece. It's set up in such a way that it's easy to remember, it's easy to learn to sing. You know, it's not actually easy to write a really good popular tune. Um, It's just like it's not easy to write a good advertising jingle because you've got to balance being instantly memorable with not being tiresome. And that's a really delicate balance. Barry Manilow has that skill. But, you know, a lot of people um, who are really wonderful composers, they lack that talent. And Verdi had it in abundance. Verdi's like Puccini with this. Um, You all know the story that uh, when Verdi was working on Rigoletto, he knew La Donna Immobile was going to be a hit. And so he simply decided, what I should do is only coach the tenor privately, and we don't want to play it because, as he correctly surmised, the day after the premiere, it was in every organ grinder's repertory in Venice. See, that's really a good tune. The Anvil Chorus has a certain kind of greatest hits quality about it as well. But then notice, as that ends, Atsuchena comes in with what is really, well, Verdi calls it a canzona. It's a song. It is, in fact, a strophic song, like a hymn or the Star Spangled Banner or anything like that. The music repeats. You have a different set of words. Part of the reason for that is she is really sort of captured by this vision that she's never going to be able to escape to the end of the opera, that kind of primal scene of watching her mother burn alive, that she can't go away from that. And everything is fixed for her on that. Oh, no, he's on your head, no. 
one I want to emphasize about the Anvil Chorus and about Atsuchena's number is how symmetrical they are. Now, what I mean by that is not a kind of mirror symmetry, but a kind of sort of finishing of regular periodic cycles. If you ever listen to something as simple as, like, say, uh, John Philip Sousa March, one thing that you'll notice is that the way that it's built is that on the very local level, you've got paired beats. If you think of like the Washington Post, yeah, da 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 dum da dum da dum dum, yeah, da 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 dum da dum da dum da 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 dum da dum da dum, and so that's falling into patterns of one two one two. But there's more than that because the groups of one and two themselves tend to fall into larger units of four, so that you get one two 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 three two four two. That unit set of units will fall into a pair or a sort of set of four of those, and things get nested all the way up. That's what we really mean by symmetry. Now, particularly in composers who are interested in following the traditions of people like Haydn and Mozart, this is something that you play with. For instance, when you're listening to lots of Mozart pieces, instrumental, vocal, it does not matter. He will like to set up these patterns and then he will interrupt himself. You can actually hear literally how in the middle of one of those groups, he breaks it in some way. Either he truncates it and interrupts himself. Sometimes he'll extend it a little bit. And there will be lots and lots of play with this. Often um, musicologists will refer to this as hypermeter as this sort of level above what we think of as the meter. But it matters when it's extremely regular just as often as when it's not, because extreme regularity is doing its own thing. The way that I tend to like to think of it is most music has a lot of potential domains that it can develop. But musics typically don't try to develop everything. Thus, really famously, for instance, if you listen to North classical Indian repertoire, it is not harmonically complex, but it can't be because it's melodically much more complex than anything you will ever find in Europe. European music, it seems, specialized early in harmony and let a lot of rhythmic complexity and a lot of melodic complexity go. It's like, we can't do everything, we won't do that. Um, In North India, in South India, for that matter, melody tends to be hugely important. West Africa is the land of incredibly subtle and complex polyrhythm quite often. Lots of different cultures in West Africa work with amazingly complex and skillful sort of sets of polyrhythmic structures. So that's as true in in opera composition as it is in world music, in fact. Different composers will be working heavily in certain ways. Wagner is not usually thought of as a great rhythmic resource. And part of the reason for that is that's not what he's after. He's after something very, very different. He's after a different physical experience. Verity wants the regularity, partially because the anvil chorus is supposed to be diverting. 
It's supposed to entertain and put you into a kind of exotic place. It's very, very much like French academic painting of the 19th century um, of exotic locales, of, you know, Turkish harems or ancient Rome or things like that. It's a kind of subspecies of popular history painting. And in that, it really shows its legacy from romantic opera of the earlier 19th century. So it's very, very regular that way. When Atsuchena comes in with her, with her canzona, it is also quite regular, in fact. So it's easy to hear. It's easy to start, you know, absorbing. But there's also not necessarily a lot of drama in what's going to happen here. The drama tends to be focused on the voice itself. I think that's probably why it's been said that all you really need to have a successful Trovatore is the four greatest singers in the world, because it's really very much a piece where extremely athletic, skilled singing can make a huge difference in performance impact. Uh, this next thing that I wanna play you is from the end of the opera where Leonora has taken poison because she's gonna die with her boyfriend. Um, the number is usually called, it's incipit, is prima che d'altri vivere. This is an old recording with Joan Sutherland. Uh, and I'm playing it just shamelessly because, you know, that woman had some high notes. She really, really did.
Um, so it's in moments like that. It's in moments where the voice can actually sort of take its own sort of space and really sort of produce itself at its most luxurious that I think we really also see one of the things that this kind of very convention-oriented style can do. Um, this is convention at its highest kind of development. It's really sort of a beautiful kind of moment and really, really effective. And it's things like that that I think probably encouraged Verity to end up doing something quite different from what he had in mind in the first place. It's almost as if in his experiments with the more intense psychological realism, we'll call it, of Rigoletto and Traviata, he decided, no, let's see what we can really do pushing the old style to its last limits. Um, and what he got, as I say, you know, maybe it hasn't been as much a critical success as we might hope, but it's been phenomenally successful amongst audiences and deservedly so. And with that, I thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.